0: On the evening of January 22, 1999, the Australian missionary Graham Staines and his two sons, 10-year-old Philip and 7-year-old Timothy, arrived in the small village of Manuharpur in the Indian state of Odisha. By the time they arrived in Manuharpur that night, Graham had been serving as a missionary in India for 34 years. He had built a life there, ministering to the lepers of the Mayurbanj district, He met and married his wife, Gladys, on the mission field. Uh, They married in 1983, not long after Graham had been named superintendent of a mission in the district headquarters of Barapada. Together, the couple had three children while serving in India. Uh, The first was a daughter, Esther Joy, born in 1985. She was followed by Philip in 1988, and then Timothy in 1992. In this respect, it would be fair to say that over the course of 34 years, India had become home for Graham and his young family. Graham was on his way to the city of uh, Kionjar when he and his son stopped in Manuharpur that night to attend a jungle camp meeting. Uh, These meetings were an opportunity to instruct villagers over a wide range of subjects, including but not exclusive to the scriptures, and Graham wanted to play a part. It was a cold evening, and so Graham and his sons elected to sleep in the family's four-wheel drive station wagon. Graham had become a well-respected member of his community. He had not only learned to speak the native language of that region, but he had participated in multiple humanitarian efforts there as well. Not three years earlier, a large fire in Barapada left over a hundred dead, and when the hospitals strained to care for the wounded, Graham and Gladys opened the doors of their mission and nursed many back to health. Again, all this conspired to gain the respect and the trust of the people in their community. However, tensions had been building in the region for some time. The Meir district uh, contained a significant population of religiously zealous Hindus, And as Christian missionaries made inroads in the surrounding communities, it attracted the ire of conservative Hindu leaders. These leaders began to claim that Christian missionaries were corrupting their culture with their mission work and aggravating the gods. This tension led to some 60 attacks on churches in Odisha between 1986 and 1998, which was the highest number of attacks in any state throughout India. In Manoharpur, some 22 of the approximately 150 families in the village had converted to Christianity over the years. And in 1998, differences in custom had raised the tensions between these two groups to a fever pitch. The tension finally hit a breaking point the night of the camp meeting. A local member of the extremist Hindu group, uh, Bajrang Dal, uh, organized a mob of around 50 people and together they marched out to the Staines station wagon. And they burned it while the stains slept. Father and sons had apparently tried to escape the inferno, but the mob prevented them. Graham and his two young boys died in the flames. This week we turn our attention once again to Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse. And one of the things that often strikes me as we move through this gospel together is just how different our situation is from that of Matthew's readers. The fingerprints of this gospel indicate that persecution was a common experience of Matthew's readers. It would seem that they were Jews who had come to believe that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Messianic promises of the Old Testament. And as you know from the book of Acts, this was a belief that was not received kindly by other Jews. Israel's religious leaders rejected Jesus' Messianic claims. In fact, as we saw at the end of Matthew 23, they even perceived his claims to be such a threat that they actively conspired together on how to destroy him. This would result in Jesus' crucifixion just a few short days after the Oliver Discourse. But of course, it didn't stop there. At the end of Matthew 23, Jesus warned the religious leaders that after he died, he would send them prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom they would kill and crucify, and some of whom they would flog in their synagogues and persecute from town to town. He would do this, he explained, so that all the righteous blood of all the martyrs shed on the earth—blood shed on the earth—would fall on them, on that generation. He would make them accountable for all of it. And that's exactly what we, what we see begin to transpire in the book of Acts. The apostles begin to preach the gospel. The gospel begins to advance across the earth. And what do we find? Peter and John are arrested and released in Acts 4. In Acts 5, they and the rest of the apostles are arrested again and beaten. By Acts 7, Stephen is stoned to death by a raging mob. He becomes the first Christian martyr. By Acts 8, Saul, who would later become Paul, is leading an organized effort to persecute Christians. By Acts 12, the apostle James dies as the second known martyr, and Herod arrests Peter shortly after that in an effort to make him the third. And it goes on and on. As the book shifts its attention to Paul, we see him arrested and beaten and stoned as he moves from one town to the next. And then when the Jewish leaders are unable to seize him, they turn their attention to his traveling companions and converts, and they beat them. When Paul comes to Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey, he's dragged out of the temple and almost killed on the spot. The only thing that saves him is the intervention of a Roman Roman tribune. This is the general tenor of the book of Acts. In fact, I think in order to really understand the message of the book of Acts, you have to pay attention to the final words spoken by Paul at the end of that book. He's in Rome, reasoning with the Jews in that city from the Scriptures, quote, trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Some believe, but many others don't. And Paul ends the book of Acts with these words. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and turn and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. And then the book of Acts ends. Luke wraps it up with a few closing comments about Paul's imprisonment in Rome. In other words, the conclusion to that book is centered around the Jewish rejection of the Gospel. It would appear that this is one of the major reasons for its writing. Luke is explaining why the Gospel has gone out and proliferated among the Gentiles and why the Jewish people have emphatically rejected that message. And that's the world that Matthew's readers inhabit. As the earliest of the Gospel writers, Matthew would have written this Gospel sometime around the time of Paul's third missionary journey, perhaps shortly after. The world that you read about in the book of Acts, that was the world that these readers lived in. And by the way, do you know why the Jews were outraged by the Gospel? Uh, Jews from Asia... Stated of the charge when Paul was seized in the temple. They saw Paul, recognized him, and cried out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. They believed that Jesus and the apostles were tearing down the law of Moses. They were destroying the Jewish way of life. And they believed that in so doing, these men were inviting the wrath of God. That's why Jesus had to deliver messages like the Sermon on the Mount. The common perception was that Jesus was a false teacher whose approach to the law would lead people into rebellion and sin. In other words, the situation that the Jews were facing in Matthew's day were not altogether unlike the one faced by Graham Staines. They too faced an opposition that was concerned about the religious and cultural transformation brought about by Christianity, and they too knew what it was like for a mob to spontaneously form for the purpose of destroying Christians. And while Matthew was primarily writing to Jewish Christians experiencing these types of trials, it wasn't only Jews that knew this experience. The Gentile Christians residing in Ephesus would tell you that they experienced the exact same thing in their cities. The world of Graham Staines was the world of the first century Christian. And to be completely honest, we know nothing of this. We live in a nation that was founded on the concept of religious freedom. In fact, we live in a nation that was founded by Christians who were seeking religious freedom. So we know virtually nothing of the experience that has been suffered by so many Christians throughout history and throughout the world today. We've never really been threatened by a government or a society that fears we're shaking the bedrock of their culture with our evangelistic efforts. We are the bedrock of the culture. If anything, it's we who feel threatened by the cultural transformation taking place around us as our society increasingly departs from its Christian roots. Fact is, so far are we from being persecuted for our faith that I think many of us are actually having a hard time just getting adjusted to the idea that we're increasingly seen as the bad guy in our culture. I mean, it used to be that following Jesus was almost universally acclaimed as a respectable thing to do, meaning we've actually enjoyed a favored status in our culture. That perspective is shifting, and as it shifts, I think many Christians don't know what to do. This is, this is unfamiliar territory for us. We're just not used to not being liked. So we have a hard time when someone hurts our feelings, treats us rudely, or simply tells us, no, I don't want to hear about Jesus. We can't even begin to fathom what it's like to live in a place where an angry mob might surround our car and burn us to death in our sleep. And because of this, I think much of Matthew's application in this gospel falls on deaf ears. Matthew's writing to Christians who are experiencing incredible hardship for their faith. And he's not only telling them how to process that suffering, but he's giving them instructions about how they should respond to it, what they need to do. And that seems so distant to us. I mean, what would you think if I got up here and I said to you, Okay, today we're going to talk about what you should do when you're facing persecution. Like suppose you're facing jail time on account of your faith in Christ. These are the steps you should take. What would you think? you probably think to yourself, what, why would we ever talk about that? That has to be about the most impractical subject imaginable. I'm never going to face something like that. Well, that's exactly what I want to talk to you about today from Matthew 24, 9 to 28. And so before we get started, I want to just take a moment to say up front, this can happen to you. You are not immune to the type of suffering experienced by Graham Staines. I think I established as much last week when I argued for an imminent rapture of the church. If you weren't here with us last week, basically what I said was that I think the scripture teaches not quite a post, mid, or pre-tribulational rapture of the church, but an imminent rapture. Meaning, while I believe the rapture could take place at any time, including right now, you could step out of the church here this morning, and suddenly we could be caught up in the air to meet Jesus in the air. I think the scripture teaches that. But what I believe is that, that that could happen before the tribulation. I don't think it must. I believe it is possible for saints alive today to experience the turmoil of the Great Tribulation. Now, I'm not going to try to make the case for that position again here this week. If you missed that, you'll just have to go back and listen to that message online. But what this means is that you could end up experiencing much of the trials and the turmoil that are described here in the book of Revelation. So yes, what happened to Graham Saints could happen to you here in America. And then some. You're not immune. Now, that being said, I also understand that I may not have convinced you last week. Some of you may still be most decidedly pre-tribbed. You believe that you most definitely will not be here for the Great Tribulation. And if so, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you over that position, because whether or not you believe that you'll experience the Great Tribulation, I would imagine that you'd still acknowledge that it's still possible for the church to experience periods of mini-tribulation. All the way up until that point. Throughout history, Christians have been known to experience intense persecution. Whether or not you agree with my position on the rapture, you'd still agree with that, right? It's possible for Christians to experience times of severe tribulation, even if it's not the great tribulation. And so whether you believe the church can be present in the great tribulation, or whether you think it will most definitely be raptured before that point, we can still all agree that persecution is a very real possibility for every Christian, right? Indeed, according to Paul, it's not just a possibility, but a probability. He even writes in 2 Timothy, Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted fact is, the peace that American Christians have enjoyed is relatively unprecedented. It's not normal. We should expect mistreatment if we're going to follow Jesus. That's been the testimony of the 20th century. In fact, I don't know if you realize this or not, but it's been estimated that anywhere from 25 to 120 million Christians died on account of their faith in the 20th century. Let me say that again. Somewhere between 25 and 120 Million Christians died for their faith in the 20th century. So, this is not just an ancient problem. Far from it. Actually, more Christians died for their faith in the 20th century than in the previous 19 centuries combined. And this wave of violence could most certainly come to America at any time. I know it probably doesn't feel likely, and perhaps it's not likely. Perhaps it's not likely to come anytime soon. But it's certainly not impossible. And I think you could easily imagine the form it would come in. For example, back in 2013, the Huffington Post ran an article with the headline, Kathleen Taylor, Neuroscientist, Says Religious Fundamentalism Could Be Treated as a Mental Illness. In this article, Ms. Taylor, who is a researcher and author from Oxford University, Is quoted as answering a question about the future of neuroscience by saying, quote, one of the the surprises may be to see people with certain beliefs as people who can be treated. She continues, someone who has, for example, become radicalized into a cult ideology, we might stop seeing that as a personal choice that they have chosen as a result of pure free will and may start treating it as some kind of mental disturbance. In many ways, it could be a very positive thing because there are no doubt beliefs in our society that do a heck of a lot of damage. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how, you, is how a postmodern society erected on epistemological uncertainty and cultural relativism quiets the voices of those who dissent from the pluralistic narrative by insisting that there is such a thing as objective truth. They don't say that such people are wrong or evil since to do that would be to make an objective truth claim. Rather, they claim they are sick. They are out of touch with reality. It's the same reasoning that was used in the eugenics movements of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. There is a group of people who, in this case, their mental rather than physical deficiencies are creating a drag on the progress of society. And so if you want to form a more perfect society, we need to, quote, treat them. And before you say I'm overreacting, just keep in mind that the famed atheist Richard Dawkins has gone on record labeling the religious indoctrination of children as, quote, child abuse. And in a 2015 interview with the Irish Times, even indicated that legislation should be passed protecting children from such indoctrination. Quote, there is a balancing act, and you have to balance the right of parents and the rights of children, and I think the balance has swung too far towards parents. He continues, children need to be protected so that they can have a proper education and not be indoctrinated in whatever religion their parents happen to be brought up in. In the same interview, Lawrence Krauss, who's the foundation professor professor of the School of Earth and Science Exploration at Arizona State University, also argued that parents should be restricted in the type of education that they're allowed to give to their children. Quote, The state is providing the education. It's trying to make sure all children have equal opportunity. And parents, of course, have concerns and a say, but they don't have the right to shield their children from knowledge. That's not a right any more than they have the right to shield their children from health care or medicine. And those parents that do that are often tried and imprisoned when they refuse to allow their children to get blood transfusions or whatever is necessary for their health. And this is necessary for their mental health. Now, don't miss the analogy there between the mental health of the child and the child. Uh, uh, and of their physical health. Krauss is advocating the same consequences for the parent who would shield their child from, quote, knowledge as he is for the parent who denies them a blood transfusion. And understand, these men are are isolated crackpots pounding out their atheistic manifestos from their parents' basement. Krauss has been named an outstanding faculty member at Arizona State University. In Dawkins' book, The God Delusion, reached number four on the New York Times bestseller list, eventually even selling over three million copies. Dawkins, in particular, is a very prominent if somewhat controversial voice in the atheist community. So I don't think it's impossible to imagine how persecution could reach us or what form it could take. I think a lot of times we have this picture of persecution where Christians are told, you must deny Jesus or die, but that's rarely how persecution actually works. For the tens of millions of Christians who died as martyrs in the 20th century, very few of them actually died for refusing to deny their faith. Instead, they were killed for failing to support changes in society and government which their faith prevented them from supporting. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, for instance, was not sent to a Nazi concentration camp simply because he was a Lutheran, but rather because he refused to join other Lutherans in supporting the policies of Adolf Hitler based on his Christian convictions. And it was the same for many of the Christians in the first century. They weren't killed for refusing to deny Jesus. They were killed for refusing to worship Caesar. The Romans were fine with Christians, so long as their allegiance to Jesus was submitted to their allegiance to Caesar. And the Christians couldn't do that. This is how it's often happened throughout history. Per- Christians are persecuted less because society has this rampant hatred for Jesus and more because of political or societal disruption caused by the Christian's faith. Take Cambodia, for instance. Approximately 10,000 Protestant Christians are presumed to have been killed for their faith under the reign of the Khmer Rouge in the 1970s. But that's just a drop in the bucket compared to the 2 million Cambodians killed by the communist purge at that time. The Khmer Rouge targeted Christians for their faith, but it was less because they were intentionally targeting Christians specifically as much as they were targeting any and every cultural group that, didn't, that they didn't perceive to be on board with the Khmer Rouge. I imagine it would be the same way in our culture. I doubt that the government would ever demand that Christians blatantly renounce their faith it would rather demand their compliance with a policy that is inconsistent with the commands of God. And then when Christians refuse, they probably wouldn't be burned at the stake or sent to a concentration camp. Instead, they'll be denied parental rights or they'll go to jail or be levied a stiff fine. Under extreme circumstances, perhaps they would even be labeled as delusional and sent for treatment. Point is, religious persecution is rarely as dramatic or directly confrontational as we think it is, and it can make its way into a society by a matter of degrees. So no, you are not immune, simply because you're an American citizen. The same types of suffering that have been experienced by so many Christians throughout the ages can, and I imagine one day will, happen here. Now, this is a rather extended introduction to our passage this morning, but I say all this because, again, I think we're probably tempted to write off what Jesus has to say here as irrelevant, and we can't do that. We shouldn't do that. In this passage, Jesus instructs His disciples about what they should do when the day of the Great Tribulation comes. That's the main force of this section of the Olivet Discourse. It's Jesus' instruction about what to do in the day of the Great Tribulation. And if you write that off, as irrelevant, either because you don't think we'll experience the great tribulation or because you don't think we'll experience even one of the many tribulations that will precede that day, then you're depriving yourself of the information needed to face what Jesus said would be a common experience for all of his followers. And so when that day finally does come, you'll find yourself woefully unprepared. It may be too late then to go back and try to learn what Jesus said to do. Rather, I think we'll see in this passage that sometimes these types of persecution can break out very suddenly. And when they do, they can happen so fast that by the time a person realizes it, they barely have time to escape with their lives, let alone sit around and deliberate about what they ought to do. You have to be ready in advance for suffering. And so all I want to do first is just to get your attention here this morning and say, listen up. What Jesus says here matters. It's important to you. It's really not very complicated, but it can be overlooked. So pay attention. Let's go ahead and look now at our passage for this morning, which is Matthew 24. Nine to twenty-eight. We've already been studying verses nine to fourteen over the past several weeks. I want to include them again in our message for this morning. The setting once again is the Olivet discourse, and in this message, Jesus is instructing his disciples about what will happen and what they should do at the end of the age. I've already described at length over the past several weeks the major events of that period of time. So I'm not going to go over that in much detail here this morning. I'd imagine you can probably figure out what the events of this passage are and what they, where they go. Uh, in the the sequence of the tribulation more or less on your own by now. What I want to do instead is explore the nature of the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. Again, he's telling them what to do when the horrifying events of the great tribulation break out. And from this instruction, I think we can derive three basic principles about how to handle religious persecution. I've entitled today's message, The Method to Martyrdom, because I think that's what Jesus describes here. This is not only the Christian's handbook to the great tribulation, it is also a step-by-step process describing for us how to respond to all types of trial and tribulation leading up to that great and awful day. These three principles are very simple and easy to remember. Again, they're just easy to overlook as well. So let's see what they are. Matthew 24, 9-28, starting with the first half of the tribulation, Jesus says this, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being will be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there He is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he's in their inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The first principle for facing persecution is this. Number one, stand firm without fear. Stand firm without fear. Verses 9 to 14, Jesus describes a period of persecution that occurs in the first half of the tribulation. We've already seen that this appears to be a Jewish led persecution, probably of other Jews in particular. They're the target of the persecution, and it's scattered throughout the Antichrist Empire. This is a time of very severe suffering, so severe, Jesus says, that at this time many will fall away and actually turn state's evidence against the church in order to save their own skin. That's a frightening thought to consider of of former brothers and sisters betraying one another unto death. But worse still is what occurs starting in verse 15 when Jesus speaks of the abomination of desolation. That's a reference to the time when the Antichrist will invade Jerusalem and set himself up as an object of worship for the entire world. There's no nation to flee to for refuge in this time because they're all under his dominion. A person is only going to have one of two options at that time, worship the Antichrist or suffer the consequences. This is going to be a time of incredibly severe trial for the Christian. Daniel says that at that time, the saints of the Most High will be given into the hands of the Antichrist, and he'll wear them out for time, times, and half a time. That is, for the entire second half of the Tribulation. Again, I I gave a full description of these events over the past several weeks, and we can see clearly that these are terrifying times. The Scripture says that they are days to be feared rather than anticipated. So what does Jesus tell his disciples to do in these times? You see the answer in verse 13. He says the one who endures to the end will be saved. He demands endurance, perseverance. This demand is amplified in the same section of the discourse over in Luke 21, where Jesus says, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. The principle is that Jesus wants His disciples not merely to stand firm, but to stand firm without fear. Now, that probably seems like an impossible task, right? Given the the terror... That any normal person is going to fear in the, feel in the face of persecution, especially a persecution as intense as that found in the Great Tribulation. But note that there's this promise here that God will supernaturally strengthen those who endure in those days to face their accusers with calm, dignity, and courage. Again, that's what we see in Luke 21. So that's, that's the good news in this. I think most of us are terrified at the prospect of persecution, and we read accounts of how much Christians suffer in other parts of the world, and and we wonder to ourselves, how, how could I ever endure that? And the answer to that is you couldn't. You won't. At least not on your own. The only way you'll persevere in those types of times is by the strength that God supplies. I think this is so important to realize as we consider the prospect of persecution. Persecution is, no, no doubt, a, a very frightening thought to consider. The promise we have is that if or even when that time comes, it will not be terrifying. And the reason is because God will supply you the strength to endure when that time comes. This is one of the things that I think is, is so encouraging to find when you study the martyrs that have gone before us the remarkable testimony of so many is not one of fear but one of unnatural serenity and courage just this week I was reading about the Boxer rebellion of the early 1900s if you're familiar if you're unfamiliar rather with the Boxer rebellion uh, this is one of those instances where Christians were targeted specifically for being Christian, and told to renounce their faith or die. It took place in China between 1899 and 1901, and it was believed by leaders of the rebellion that Christians had angered the Chinese gods that and that they were actively working to corrupt Chinese society. Rumors spread, for instance, that Christian missionary doctors were stealing the eyes of Chinese children for use in medicine. Others said that Christian missionaries had helped build the Chinese railroad, which had taken jobs from cargo haulers. The frustration led to outbreaks of organized mob violence in which Christians were often beheaded on the spot by Chinese swordsmen. Women and children were often beheaded right alongside the men. The boxers simply showed no mercy. As I read of how the missionaries responded to the suffering, what struck me again and again was how incredibly calm they were through it all. One letter in particular stuck out. It was written by a Mrs. Lizzie uh, Lizzie Atwater to her parents on August 3rd, 1900. A mother of three and, and pregnant with a fourth. At the time of her final letter, she wrote this. Dear ones, I long for a sight of your dear faces, but I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near, and he will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there seemed a chance of life. But God has taken away that feeling. And now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give it to me in heaven. And my dear mother will be so glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive the peace from God which which passeth understanding. I I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but am sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, have been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. I used to dread separation. If we escape now it will be a miracle. I send my love to you all and the dear friends who remember me. Friends listen no one, no one writes a letter like that on their own by their own strength. That's a calm and a courage that only God can supply. And it's not just Mrs. Atwater who responded this way. One Reverend Herbert Dixon told a Chinese preacher shortly before his death, quote, We are ready to glorify our Lord by life or by death. Another missionary by the name of uh, Mina Headland wrote in her final letter before her death, I don't fear if God wants me to suffer the death of a martyr. And a Miss Edith Cyril wrote to a close friend on June 28, 1900, From the human standpoint, all, that is to say all the missionaries in the Shanxi Shanxi province, all are equally unsafe. From the point of view of those whose lives are hidden with Christ and God, all are equally safe. His children shall have a place of refuge, and that place is the secret place of the Most High. And I speak, of course, of the missionaries, primarily because they bore the brunt of the boxers' wrath, but there were many Chinese Christians who died with equal courage. In fact, the Christians died with such remarkable calm and bravely, bravery that, that James and Marty Hefley write in their book, By Their Blood, quote, the bravery of such Christians astounded the boxers. Sometimes, and this gets a little graphic here, it says, sometimes they ripped out the heart of victims in search of the secret of their courage. It says, finding nothing but flesh, they would then remark, it is the medicine of the foreign devils. You see, this is actually one of the ways that God intends to verify the authenticity of the gospel to outsiders. It's it's through the supernatural courage of Christians in the face of suffering and death. Tertullian once famously remarked, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And this is what he meant by that statement. The more Christians suffer, the more the power of God is evident in the church. Again, this is one of the reasons why Jesus can say that during the time of the Great Tribulation, the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. As intense as the suffering will be during that time, it's only going to serve to make Jesus famous. As Christian after Christian gives witness to the gospel with an unexplainable fortitude and calm. So as terrifying as the prospect of persecution may seem now, you do not have to fear. No, because not because you won't experience it, but rather because if you do, you will at that time be reinforced with supernatural strength to face it head on and with perhaps even more tranquility and poise than you can muster now at the thought of it. So if persecution comes, do not fear. Endure. Stand firm. That's our first principle. Stand firm without fear. The second is this. If possible, flee. <laughs> If possible, flee. His principle is probably the most surprising, considering what we just said in the first principle. But it's true. Jesus regularly, regularly encourages His disciples to flee persecution if they have the means. We see this drawn out in verses 15 to 21, where Jesus says, So when you see the abominations of desolation spoken of in the prophet, by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for there will be a great tribulation such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Last Sunday evening, we spent some time talking about the benefits of that can come to Christians in times of persecution, and there are benefits. Paul says in Romans 8.28 that God causes all things to come together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. That includes persecution. God can do tremendous good. He can cause tremendous good to come out of the suffering of His children when they endure for His name. However, by this we should not conclude that we should therefore seek out suffering or even stay and get slaughtered if it comes to us. Far from it. Jesus actually says to flee if you can. That's evident here in verses 15 to 21, where he tells his disciples, look, once you see the abomination of desolation, get out of there. Don't stop to look back. Don't run into your house to grab supplies. Things are about to get real bad, real fast, so just run while you have the chance. But it's not just here that he says this. When he commissions the disciples in Matthew 10, he actually states quite plainly, In verse 23, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus doesn't expect His disciples to simply lie down and get butchered when persecution breaks out. Rather, He encourages them to take evasive action so that they can continue to proclaim the gospel as long as possible. You see this very kind of thing practiced by the Apostle Paul in Acts. Paul, of course, was not afraid to die for his faith. He would eventually die as a martyr. However, when he perceived that he wouldn't receive a fair trial in Israel, and that that any such trial would only end his death, what did he do? He exercised his rights as a Roman citizen and declared, I appeal to Caesar. He sought a fair trial. As brave as the missionaries of the Boxer Rebellion were, many of them did try to flee once it became evident what sort of danger they were in, and many of them were killed in transit as they tried to escape the persecution. This is the type of behavior that you're called to as well. And of course, this doesn't mean that Christians are to take up arms or anything of that sort to defend their own lives against their accusers. You don't see any example of that kind of thing in Scripture, but you are entitled and even encouraged to pursue any peaceable means possible To preserve your well-being. In the words of Jesus, we are to be as wise as serpents and innocent as doves. That is to say, we are to read the signs of the times and try to escape before the trouble breaks out. Without in any way seeking to do harm to those who would harm us. This principle, to flee if possible, is not to be overlooked, nor should we understand it to be in conflict with the first. In fact, the earliest Christians saw a relationship between the two. In short, they believed, they believed that God would not fulfill the promise of the first principle if a Christian did not exercise the second. In other words, they did not think that God would give strength to those who volunteered or ran headlong into suffering, Christians who were dubbed by them as the Spontaneous. Rather, experience told them that such grace was given only to those who obeyed Jesus by first seeking to avoid such trials. This is evidenced in an early church encyclical that recounted the martyrdom of the venerable Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp is an interesting figure. He apparently learned under the Apostle John, actually, in his youth. He would later die as a martyr at the age of 86. When he first discovered that he was to be arrested, he fled to the countryside at the urging of several friends. However, as the authorities closed in on him, he stopped running and faced the inevitable with dignity. The author of the encyclical writes, uh, Tipstaff's amount of policemen left at about supper time on that Friday, taking the houseboy with them. The men had been issued with the regulation of weapons, just uh, just as if it were a brigand they were tracking down. They closed in on Polycarp late at night and found him in bed in an attic. Even then, he could have made his escape to another place, but refused, saying, God's will be done. And when the local governor pressed him to renounce Christ, Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? When the time finally came for, to fasten him to the stake at which he was to be burned, he resisted, telling his captors, Let me be. He who gives me strength to endure the flames will give me strength not to flinch at the stake without your making sure of it with nails. He then offered up a prayer to God, in which he praised God for the opportunity to die as a martyr, saying, I bless thee for granting me this day and hour that I may be numbered amongst the martyrs to share the cup of thine anointed, And to rise again unto life everlasting, both in body and soul, in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them this day in thy presence, a sacrifice rich and acceptable, even as thou didst appoint and foreshadow, and dost now bring it to pass. For thou art the God of truth, and in thee there is no falsehood. Polycarp, of course, is another stirring example of the kind of strength that God supplies his people, to endure torment for his name, a strength that Polycarp relied upon as he went to the stake. Well, earlier in the encyclical, the author writes of another man, Quintus, who was one of the spontaneous. And we learn from his example as well. Quote, there was a man, however, Quintus by name, a Phrygian, recently arrived from Phrygia, whose courage failed him at the sight of the beast's. It was he who compelled himself and some others to surrender themselves voluntarily. And after much persuasion, he was induced by the governor to take the oath and offer incense. And the author then adds, And that is the reason, brothers, why we do not approve of men offering themselves spontaneously. We are not taught anything of that kind in the gospel. You see, the church recognized that believers who went to the stake reluctantly, like Polycarp, endured while those who went voluntarily, like Quintus, did not. And from this they understood that God's promise of endurance is ordinarily fulfilled only in those whom He has sovereignly called to the act of martyrdom. Notes one prominent church historian, quote, this was important for the early Christians who believed that martyrdom was not something that one chose, but something for which one was chosen by God. Those who were so chosen were strengthened by Christ, who suffered with them, and for that reason were able to stand firm. Their firmness was not of their own doing, but of God. On the other hand, those who ran forward and offered themselves for martyrdom, the spontaneous, were false martyrs, and Christ would desert them. In other words, while Christ calls us to endure persecution, and while he promises to sustain us through it, at the same time, Christians should have no hero complex. We can understand why God would not grant strength to those such Christians. After all, they're seeking to stand by their own strength, and for their own glory, it runs contrary to God's purpose for persecution, which is to magnify His power through those who suffer when He causes them to stand. So make no mistake, there is to be only one hero in our story, and that's Christ. God gets all the glory, we get none. And so when persecution comes, we flee if possible. And then we stand firm by the strength that only God can supply if we can't flee. Finally, let's look now at our third principle, which is be vigilant. Be vigilant. We find this principle in verses 23 to 28. Jesus says, Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, Look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, Look, he is in the inner room, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This third principle is actually tied... "...to the second as it's aimed at escaping the threat of persecution." Back in verses 15 to 22, Jesus instructs his disciples to escape the Antichrist's wrath by fleeing to the wilderness. We know from Revelation 12 that those Jews who do this will be supernaturally preserved from Antichrist's fury for the remainder of the tribulation period. If you remember the whole image of the woman and the dragon, the woman flees into the wilderness, and when the dragon is cast down from heaven in the second half of Revelation chapter 12, it's said that it pours out a great flood of water from its mouth to sweep the woman away in a flood. However, the earth swallows up the water and saves her. Realizing that he's been beaten, the dragon then turns his attention to the rest of the saints in order to persecute them. It would seem that what we find here in verses 23 to 28 of the Olivet Discourse is an attempt by the false prophets to draw these believing Israelites out of their refuge in the wilderness so they can be attacked. Jesus says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Best I can tell, that's a reference to these false teachers. He's warning his followers that because they are the target of persecution, false teachers are going to proliferate around them, perhaps even within their midst, in order to devour them. In this instance, these false teachers try to get the Christians to leave their refuge. By saying, look, here is the Christ, there he is. And then they'll declare his location. He's in this part of the countryside, or he's in that part of the city. They try to tell Christians that Jesus has come back before he really has, because they anticipate that this will tempt believers to go out in search of him, and this will leave them exposed. They'll even perform signs and wonders that would seem to verify their message and the return of Christ. You know what makes this prophecy interesting? In Islam, there's a figure known as the Mahdi. It's prophecy that this figure will appear on earth before the day of judgment in order to purify the earth and establish the whole world under the global rule of Islam. He will rule for approximately seven years, it's said. And his his coming will be accompanied by wars and by plague that will kill approximately two-thirds of the global population. That all sounds oddly familiar, doesn't it? I mean, it's virtually the spitting image of the man we would call the Antichrist. Well, according to the Muslims, he's not the Antichrist, but he fights the Antichrist. And do you know who assists him in his fight? Jesus of Nazareth. That's right, Muslims believe that before the Day of Judgment, Jesus is going to descend from heaven near the city of Damascus, and he will tell everyone to follow the Mahdi. He'll even fight with the Mahdi and personally slay the Antichrist. If that doesn't sound like the second beast of Revelation 13, I don't know what does. I mean, you can see that in Islam, everything is flipped. Our Christ is their Antichrist. Their Mahdi is our Antichrist. Their Jesus is our false prophet. Now, I'm not saying that the Antichrist is Muslim. I don't know. It would seem like a strange prospect, given that the Scripture says that the Antichrist comes from Rome. But it's not impossible. My point is simply that this prophecy illustrates what could be going on. In Matthew 24, 23-28, you have this Messiah figure coming to Israel in the name of Jesus saying, Guys, you got it wrong. Islam was right. You need to follow the Mahdi. And with the signs and wonders he performs, he's very convincing. It looks like maybe he's right. Maybe that is Jesus. And maybe Islam was the true religion after all. Jesus says that these false Christs and false prophets are so convincing that they will lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And so, Jesus says, you have to be on guard. You have to be vigilant. Remember what I've told you and do not be led astray. This type of deceit is a common feature in persecution. You go back to Paul's imprisonment in Jerusalem, for example. And there's this plot in Acts 23 where the Jews conspire to lure Paul into a vulnerable position by telling the tribune they want to examine him more thoroughly. They don't actually mean to examine him. They just want to get him out of jail and into public so they can ambush and assassinate him. The only reason why Paul is saved from the plot is because Paul's nephew was vigilant, learned of the plot, and reported it to Paul. That enabled Paul to tell the tribune, who then sent Paul under a heavy guard out of Jerusalem and onto a more secure location in Caesarea. The same thing happened to the missionaries in the Boxer Rebellion as well. For example, seven missionaries were killed in the Shanxi province when the magistrate assigned them, assigned them an armed guard and sent them out of the city to find safety. Once the guards brought the missionaries out of the immediate area, they turned on them and killed them. Another seven missionaries were huddled in a chapel when the local magistrate sent warning that the group of boxers were coming to kill them and to flee to the coast. As they departed, they encountered an ambush orchestrated by the magistrate, and only one of the missionary wives managed to escape. In another instance, eight British Baptist missionaries were hiding in caves in the countryside when they received word from the local magistrate that he would offer them protection if they returned to the city. They were immediately jailed for two weeks and then promised a protective escort to the coast. However, as they were passing between the inner and outer gates of the city, the escort suddenly closed around them and other armed guards sprang from hiding and brutally beat them all to death. Are you sensing a theme here? It's not uncommon that after Christians have fled to refuge from their accusers for those accusers to try to draw them out of hiding through deception. It will happen during the Great Tribulation, and Jesus tells His disciples, See, I have told you beforehand, do not go out. They need to be cautious and realize that they're dealing with a trap. The same, I think, could be said for the persecutions that will precede that tribulation as well. So be vigilant. Again, while we shouldn't fear persecution, that doesn't mean that we go looking for it either. The goal, Jesus explains, is to stay alive if possible. And that will will require both discernment and great vigilance. Once again, we are to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So, whether you believe we can experience a great tribulation or not, those are your instructions. That's your handbook for persecution. That's Jesus' method to martyrdom. He doesn't want his followers to seek out persecution. Rather, he wants them to flee from it, if possible. He wants them to be vigilant for those who would seek to draw them out of their refuge. And then finally, should persecution still find them after all these things, he wants them to stand firm and endure without fear. Lord willing, we'll never need to use this handbook. My my sincere hope is that this is the most impractical, irrelevant message I will ever preach right we live in a country that has experienced unprecedented religious freedom for the past 250 years we should first heed paul's instruction in second timothy chapter 2 and pray for another 250 more right and lord willing god will grant us that however however we must always be prepared jesus spoke words like this to his disciples because he expected that persecution would not only be a possible experience for his disciples but a probable one as well Let's pray that if that day should ever come to us, we'll be ready. Let's pray.